0: With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to TNTRadio.live. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Welcome to the Dirk Pullman Show on today's News Talk Radio,
1: TNT. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome to the Doug Pullman Show from Berlin, Germany. My guest is Pelle Nirut, uh, Taylor, Pelle Nirut or Pelle Nirut Taylor, I don't know, from uh, Sweden. And uh, we have talked before, but uh, the breaking news is Pelle soon is going to be a TNT host. And uh, this is your chance to get uh, him to know uh, and uh, it's also for him, it's a chance if anybody will ask who he is, he can refer to this show. So we want to go a little bit into who you are, what you've done. And um, I just returned from Belarus. There was a conference. Uh, the state prosecutor decided uh, that they will go ahead uh, for the 75th anniversary of the UN Genocidal Convention as a convention on genocide um, that uh, that might have been a little wrong what i said before so the convention <laughs> on genocide Um, <clears throat> um uh, and it is, was very interesting in connection to what's happening in gaza right now because uh, we all know about the holocaust and uh, the Shoah, it's also called um, but i really learned um, in the last year a ton about the genocide in belarus which is probably um, in terms of uh, connected uh, being connected to a war, the worst that ever happened. It's 33 percent of the population and rising mm. intentionally, planfully killed by the German forces in World War II. And it's hardly known in its scope to um, to anybody. I really I asked more than 12 colleagues in Germany and they knew something about it. They knew there was a war. Of, um it was a, a war to kill off people it was not a war to conquer territory or so it was a genocidal war uh and it had, had all the the plans of that and it was um all the the methods that were used for example what was called uh, the uh, hunger plan the hunger plan um the basic uh background of that is in world war one and this is what I want to talk about with you too in world war one uh, the German forces um, and the German population had uh, a winter of hunger, and that was engraved into the German uh, mind. So the Nazis did everything that in World War II it would not be the same, because the amount of food produced in Germany would hardly be enough under uh, under uh, terms of war. Yeah. So yeah. they stole what they could get from, uh, especially Ukraine, uh, be- uh, because of the black soil there hugely fertile, the best ground in in the world, probably, and uh, transported that to Germany. And they intentionally planned to kill about 30 million people by hunger. So Mm. that was not accidental. It was not uh, um, uh, an effect of the war. It was both. It was an effect and it was planfully made and executed. But it's only part of that. So the point why I mention this is when I hear about now uh, what we just saw uh, i mean the the west is uh, in the west the remembrance of the holocaust is enshrined you touch something that is in the vicinity or a kilometer away and you get an, uh, an immediate reaction but with ukraine <coughs> uh, where similar things have happened uh, in terms and belarussia and russia it's somehow that if uh, if the actions there didn't count it is the same ideology it's the same plan it's the same intentionality it is mass murder in a huge scale, but oh. somehow the Russians and the Belar Russians, and also now it's different with the Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians did not account as full human beings, I would say. In German TV, there was a show, and they, we had a, a, this is new now, female experts oh. for military, and she said, um, that's not the exact wording, but words to the effect that the Russians look like Europeans, but they aren't, they are different. And now imagine to say something like that about Jews, then Mm. you know what happens. Your life expectancy as a radio uh, moderator would be 15 seconds, something like that. India, yeah then you were gone and it's it's uh, it's a classical example of these double standards so yeah. um i want to talk with you today i'm talking too much now you will get the floor no. in, a, in a few seconds <laughs> okay. i want to talk to you about about this and about ukraine because the situation is changing rapidly yeah you could see what's going on there uh ukraine is about to be dropped and uh then also the rand corporation because i found that most interesting and world war one But first, uh, if you want to comment on what uh, did you know about these 33% of the population count as rising? Um, Well, I didn't know it was exactly 33%, but
2: a few months ago I rewatched a film called E.D. Smutli, which is Come and See, which is probably the best war film ever made. Um, And What is E.D. Smutli? It It is uh, Elan Klimovsky. It means look and see, come and see in English. Ah, Okay,
1: it's in English, it's come and see, right. It yeah, yeah, came yeah, out in yeah.
2: 1986 I mean, and it won an Oscar for Best Foreign
1: Film. Masterpiece. Uh, uh, it is, that. absolutely.
2: And I remember seeing it in the cinema, uh, literally, if we, you and I are old habitués of the Palmer story, you know. Um, it was on at the <laughs> cinema just those weeks. So at the cinema where Palmer was visiting, it was showing in the other, in the other cinema. And uh, I remember seeing it with my dad, I was uh, 16 or 17 years old, and being completely blown away by the by the sensitivity and and the well I mean the style of the film having sort of grown up with american war films or like Hogan's heroes which were re- relatively bloodless stories and very gung ho i mean you I, and i remember i think it was about then when i i um i grew up with the second world war basically i'm a child of the 1970s and um in england I mean, the thing is, I spent some of my childhood in Sweden and some of it in England, but my earliest childhood I spent in England. And then I came back to England when I was 16. So six or seven years I spent in Sweden. But before that, when I was up to seven or eight, we played war games every day. We ran around on the street. We bought plastic rifles. We had little tin soldiers. We watched. I had two or three war comics, which I read every week. And they were called valiant and battle and and it was always the Germans were Achtung Minen, Achtung, you know, that's the only thing that said <laughs> you're Australian what well, viewers will know exactly what I'm talking about because I think it was DC comics that were sold in Australia. But the Germans were not say I mean the, the Germans weren't evil, they were just the opponents. I think that the the the, the sacralization of the Holocaust and, and 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 the came later. So I thought it was relatively harmless, you know. I mean, but but um we thought that the Germans uh, were defeated by the British, you know, and the Battle of Britain was a big thing and so on. And it was only until I, when I was about 16 or 17 when I, I realised that 95% of the German forces were tied up uh, against fighting against the Soviet Union. And that was yes. the big Ragnarok, you know. And um, and that changed my my view. And then I read up much more on the East Front and so on. So, I mean, I, I've been woke in that sense for decades, but still, I think a lot of Brits... Um, are still quite anti-German and they still, I mean, the, especially the working class, you know, I mean, they, they have their po- poor jobs, as it were, on, on zero hours contracts. They have this kind of children's um, uh, w- milk bottle of the big, two world wars and one world cup, is that saying, you remember? That's and uh, that that is the essence, that is the British pride is based on that. And I think that drove a lot of the, the Brexit uh motivation because there was a feeling that the germans had won the peace and that they were dominating the british and and so on uh having lost uh, world war 2 and a lot of that pride came with that but i think um so um i i i realized that and uh, and um i think the um the, the the british always used to complain you know the americans take credit for a lot of things that we did like the 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 ultra Intercept the ultra machines, which allowed the, the British and Americans to decode all the
1: Germans, yeah, messages. but that should go to the Polish but, mathematicians in exactly. The first place. <laughs> so, that, in fact, the British <laughs> are saying,
2: Will the Americans take the credit from us? But the British have taken credit from both the Russians and the Poles. I mean, the Poles were mm-hmm. supplying the m- machines, and the Germans for the Russians were supplying most of the combat power. So, there was this always this underestimation of the Russians, which we could probably see today. I mean, that the Russians were were sort of useless alcoholics and um a primitive you know and um Mm -hmm. but i was just going through um i uh my early career i went to to, uh, university i did a a philosophy and math degree and then i uh, went to journalism school and that was much more fun i mean this was like the best fun you could have without and being paid for it i thought (laughs) and especially if you're a young man because you get paid to go out and explore the world and uh, sort of part poet part philosopher part journalist you know you go there and you write long notes sitting in the cafes and then you talk to people and i spent a lot of time in the baltic states and in russia in 1991 and 1992-94 so and i went down to yugoslavia and i experienced the war there and i met a lot of germans uh german journalists you know and with their perspectives on uh that part of the world and the brits we're really quite arrogant. And I, I, I know I'm, I'm a contemporary of a lot of the people at the very top of British journalism today who are the most uh, russophobic of all. I mean, people like Edward Lucas, and Applebaum, I and mean, she was American, but she worked for The Economist. And I had um, contact Timothy Garton-Ash. Yeah. She's how many the wife biomists.
1: of, of Szykowski, the, the foreign That's minister right. of Poland.
2: But she yeah. started out as a journalist working for The Independent. And then there's Timothy Garton-Ash, who's <laughs> the doyen of, of British foreign policy commentators, you know relentlessly Russophobic. And I I sometimes wonder how many of these people were MI6 assets? Because you know, we know that the British have MI6 has very close connections to the British media. And if these guys were out there in 89, 90, just before before and after the wall fell, but I think that there was a movement going on in 1988. So the British, the Independent, I remember the Guardian sent out people and I read them avidly every day I was at university. I thought, my God, I wish I could be there, not sitting in Mm -hmm. university. And uh, now with my 30 years experience thinking, writing, and studying intelligence agencies, I think they might well have um, been uh, a- assets, I, mean, I don't know, I wouldn't name their actual names, but or they had a double job, and they've done very well. So who has helped them along in their careers, you know? They've, and, and I think now they're having their kind of swan song. I mean, the British press has been the most aggressive, the most pro-Ukrainian, the most unfair, the, uh, perhaps the German media accepted, but I mean, the German media doesn't have a reach outside the German speaking world, whereas the British media is a worldwide thing, right? right. And um, so I, I think they, yeah, and, but I think that they, they to, to, to give them some credit, I mean, the Russia of 1990, 92 was really you know, down in the dumps. And um, I say this because literally about four days ago, I was going through an old novel, which I never published, but which I'm trying to get published now. And um, it's because I I knew that I was going, living through a significant period of history. It was like Germany, 1945. I mean, nothing worked. Everything was in rubble. I mean, but there had been no war basically, but the Russian army was pulling out. But I mean, my, my young sort of politically naive experience, I mean, I was not, I was pretty... As kind of anti-communist and a bit anti-Russian, but I, I just I noticed very, very carefully everything that I saw. And basically the Baltic states was they were these societies were kind of wrecked basically. And I think some of it might have been due to the actual decline of the Soviet Union rather than uh the cause by the Soviet rule itself. Because what happened in 1989 and 90 was that the nationalism stopped the trade between the internal republics you know so i mean lithuania made all the washing machines and then one component might be made in in russia or somewhere and that was a way for the russians to tie together their soviet union and and distribute work to all the republics but once once the borders were created there was no economy going because they everything everybody was lacking components so some of the poverty of the baltic states could be down to that but I, I know that the Bolts, again, I mean, uh, the Bolts of my age now, a lot of them were young or students or whatever, and I sort of h- hung around with them in a way. Or I mean, I, I was aware of them. We're part of the same generation. And they blame everything on the Soviets and on, and on the Russians and, and everything. And um, I think that some of the, the young British journalists who are now in very senior positions judge, they might have spent decades in the UK, um, uh, but they still think the Russia of 1992 is the Russia of 2022. Uh, but I, I, I haven't been to Russia for a long time. I mean, I, I, I gave up being a East European correspondent when, let's say, around 2000 or something. But I, I followed new events quite closely. But uh, what I see from YouTube videos of... Um, of Russia now, from kind of Russian journalists speaking English, is it's a very looks very modern, you know, and very totally different from the Russia I experienced, and maybe it's just a Potemkin facade that they're putting out. I don't think so, but I mean the the supermarket. No, supermarkets
1: no it's not. Packed. It's not. It is. If you, uh, I've been there um, from this about the time that you left. I've uh, started to to travel to that these places and. You could see uh, i mean russia in the in the time that you are describing that is the abysm of russia of all time even for the russians themselves uh, so stalin is uh, uh is a uh, is a leader if you go to, to moscow and you look yeah. at the place where his grave is then you will notice there are always flowers yeah and a lot of flowers so stalin is held in high regard but,, uh, the Yeltsin years is when Russia lost everything. It lost order, it lost its pride. It became the caricature of capitalism that they once depicted the West to be. And yeah. it was it couldn't get any worse. and it's not that. So one of the things that um uh, if you want to be, a uh, putin understander as it's called in germany that is an insult where i think every journalist should be one yeah, <laughs> yeah well yeah. that's our top and um, then you see that the pride is back in russia and that it works and uh, you they try to do sanctions and so on but it all doesn't work russia is on its feet and it doesn't stumble it's uh, it's quite strong. It's quite strong and it's going well, and people have confidence. So, that is a completely different picture. If we talk about Germany now, then you could say we are on the decline. Uh, everything is in shambles. Mercedes Benz is contemplating to leave the country. Can you imagine that? Yeah. So, wow what kind of flag will we have <laughs> it's usually the Mercedes star for everybody worldwide yeah so yeah. we are Germany is now on the decline it is I think also similar to Great Britain in the 80s uh if you could compare it to that so yeah. things have been shifting it's a tectonic shift and as you described uh and but I always noticed that the attitude um the what I found, find find strange is I've also a lot of friends in the United States that I can talk to and I see how easy it is to real uh, to um, to reinstate all the the ideology, compartmental knowledge about Soviet Union to switch it over to Russia when in fact it is a different uh, it's a different state, it's a different attitude. but uh, the anti-communist propaganda of the Cold War is uh, very vivid now. Uh, in these times where but things are of course not the same they're not the same in the west anymore the whole west is in trouble and russia is not the sick place not the tanking the filling station with nuclear weapons like uh, i think obama once called them yeah so yeah. The, all these insults that they handed out or was it cheney i think it was cheney obama yeah. said it's a it's a it's a regional power yeah all these insults uh, insults that had been handed out uh, we're not prudent, not at all. And now uh, the situation is very different. Uh, only one thing I always remind people of is that they have hypersonic weapons and Iran has and China has, but the United States doesn't have them and Britain doesn't have them and Germany doesn't have them. So you can see even in terms of engineering, um, it's uh, the, it's a completely different story now. They, they're pumping yeah. out they have brilliant engineers. They're pumping out stuff, mm. but we we. Uh, so it's not only German arrogance, which is famous, but it's European, it's Western arrogance, and it doesn't fit mm. the reality anymore. Yeah, I am. I, um, um, I noticed, I've, sorry, Pella, this is something yeah. that you will notice also soon. We have uh, 20 past the hour, so this is the time for the advertisements. This and 20 to the hour. We break now. I have to interrupt you. We get back to that. Keep your mind
0: tnt radio's timothy shea the double standard is out there
3: it's so obvious it's so frustrating eric holder gets held in contempt of congress for defying a congressional subpoena nothing happens obama's doj didn't pursue it steve bannon and peter navarro defy a congressional subpoena joe biden's doj criminally prosecutes them criminally prosecutes them for defying a congressional subpoena. And now we've got congressional subpoenas of Hunter Biden and James Biden, the resident's brother. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done by Merrick Garland, Barack Obama, Joe Biden's DOJ. That's right. I said Barack Obama. Obama's the shadow president. He's not the one pulling the strings. He wasn't pulling the strings in his own administration. You know, Valerie Jarrett was his minder. Where is the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett these days? haven't seen or heard much of her. It's because the Democrats
0: are smart. Timothy Shea on today's News Talk, TNT Radio.
3: Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars. It's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access
0: it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. The human mind is like a computer no matter how efficient it may be its reliability is only as great as the information fed into it that's a campaign promise tell us the truth tell us the truth we mandate that the truth be told you're hearing it,
1: tnt yeah this is dirk pullman with its dirk pullman show and pelini root and he was we're talking about really this tectonic shift in the importance of the of the big blocks of power and uh, the end of the unipolar world but Go ahead, Pella. you wanted to say something.
2: The projects that I'm working on are sort of anticipate that. I mean, I think that, um, I sometimes think, when, when we've lived um, in a 20th century, which was the Anglo, an Anglo century, I mean, Anglo meaning Ang- British and American, and they've, Victor's, one thing we can all agree on, even though we de- disagree on the specifics, is surely this, that Victor's right history. And so the, the um, the reason why, I mean, we know that the, the Americans, the Anglos have carried out dozens of coups since World War II, including against, I mean, Australia, Gough Whitlam in 1975, there was that controversial mm. thing. Gough, Gough Whitlam was sort of the olaf Palmer of Australia, you know, and he disappeared under very dis- suspicious circumstances. But I mean, uh, scholars talk about the dozens of coups, but somehow all that, the memory of all that is wiped out by the the great good wars of so World War I, World War II, basically. That trumps everything, and the and and the Holocaust which makes Germany into the unique evil and the the British of course just like the I don't think the American Lincoln was fighting for slavery was fighting to extinguish um the the rights of the states um but it became retrospectively a moral cause and so so uh, the the world and so let it, let us take that because yeah I don't want to challenge that that the, the World War II was the good war and Hitler was extremely evil and and but you know I think that um the we can't we 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 do need to examine uh, some of the British and American misdeeds, um, not necessarily against. I mean, I'm not I'm not. Um, if I was an Indian, I'd be writing books about the the great famine in Bengal, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, if I was Nigerian, we talk about the and they've they've taken up a lot of the space. But you can also write an anti-British book from a European or even a German perspective, um, or. And because I think that, or or a Russian perspective, and I think that the Russians, if they knew about the how World War One actually panned out and the origins of World War One panned out, I don't think they're sufficiently anyway, aware. I think the Russians try to avoid talking about World War One because, in a way, they were the bad guys in World War One for reasons I'll explain. And it, um, yeah, they 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 didn't really. I mean, they talk about the Great Patriotic Wars. That's their big thing, but the yep. parallels between the 20 years running up to 1914 and the 20 years running up to 2014 are quite interesting or well, let's say because what you had was i mean germany um this was my corona book as it were when i um when i more time i spend in sweden the more sort of certain memories of england become pronounced you know and certain certain aspects you 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 move away from the sort of daily grind and the advertising and commuting on the tube and daily conversations in the pub and you think, what, what, what is England really about? And the thing I found myself missing and thinking about a lot was the sad memories in autumn coming up for the November 11th anniversary of Armistice Day, you know, and it's a big ceremony, I think. I don't know if it's, it is in Germany, but I, I know it is in Australia and Canada and Britain and France. When you have a two minute silence in front of the cenotaph in Britain and people remember the dead of World War I and la- later all wars. And, you know, the cenotaph is this uh, monument in the centre of London in Whitehall, which is the government street. And uh, if all the British dead in World War I marched past the cenotaph, it would take three days of nonstop marching. And the British, only a fraction of the number of British died compared to the number of Germans dying. It was a much worse war for for the British than the Second World War. The Second World War was seen as the easy war because the British didn't fight so much. I mean, the Battle of Britain, hardly anyone died. And um, then they fought in the desert, which was a gentleman's war between Rommel and the British. And then the Germans obviously were fighting the Russians. And that was the big savage war where people committed huge human rights violations. But the British-German conflict was relatively chivalrous. They respected each other. And uh, so the British always have a positive memory of that. And I can't remember, I mean... Hoogers will cite me uh, as being, but I think, let's say 300,000 war dead, and in World War One, it was 700,000 or 800,000 war dead. But this this thing about the trenches and going over the top and into the German machine gun fire and kicking a football against the German trench so that you get all the lads running up with you and then being just mown down, all that is extremely deep in the British folk memory. And it's a sad, it's a sad event because it's not triumphalist at all, unlike a lot of what what else you see in britain i mean the british it's a very deeply sad event and i remember on the 11th of november sitting here in in, in peaceful sweden which hasn't had a war for 200 years and telling our neighbors well you, she said well, are you a bit sad and thoughtful i said well it's the 11th of november today and she said oh is that pippi longstocking's birthday <laughs> so happy ignorance (laughs) i mean sweden is wonderful but i mean the the historical knowledge is not their strong point i mean they do but it's it's um there's no sense of tragedy about sweden that's the thing it's it's a country it's a welfare state and and things people are kind of naive i guess and um, which
1: also and, is a blessing you know yeah sure. I, it's, it's I went paradise, every year to way. Sweden because of that it's kind of a civilized paradise maybe it's a little bit weak so to speak uh, but uh, but uh, weak I mean in the terms of not addressing for, for example all the Investigations on political scandals are uh, are that's shame right. in Sweden. Yeah. Well, I but, think uh, living there is is beautiful. Yeah.
2: It's, it, I, I think it's. I think the Germans like Sweden because Germany. Sweden is what Germany could have been. I mean, it's. It feels. Yes. I don't know how you feel, but <laughs>
1: very good. Very good.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very the true. Thing is, I mean, Berlin is becoming increasingly fashionable for for Swedes now. It used to be London, but now it's Berlin. <laughs> and one of Sweden's most famous writers lives in Berlin now, and he says. Germany is Sweden for grown-ups, you know,
0: because
2: <laughs> <laughs> Germans are kind of seen to be more intellectual and more, uh, more serious and more, more hardworking, and the Swedes are a little bit, you know. But um, um, you shouldn't so, be so, praised but, too much. But I think it's very but, interesting. what I wanted to, to anyway, relate so to I'll guess because... let's go back to so, so I i okay. I've got a what what project really engages you? I mean, I I took time out of daily journalism because I didn't want to have my, you know, jour- newspapers wrapped tomorrow's. Fish and chips, that's what everyone says, you know, I wanted to write lasting books. So I left London with my savings, basically, and I settled here with my girlfriend and thought, well, what is what do I, what, what long form projects do I really want to work with? And I am I did some films, which I really enjoy. But I mean, the real focus of my ambition is to write really important books, right, and historical books. So I read up all the material on World War One. I I, and a lot of it's on the Internet because the books are out of copyright, you know. But I probably I, hundreds and hundreds of books I consulted, some in French. I don't re- read German, sadly. But a lot of uh, a lot of books from the nineteen twenties uh, were quite good. Isn't that amazing? Of, yeah. you, if you yeah. go
1: into World War One, you need to read the books from the twenties because and, that's right. Uh, that, yeah, yeah.
2: Because and uh, I mean the thing is, what happened um, in it, the in the nineteen twenties after the Versailles Treaty. And after all the diplomatic papers started to open up, I mean, uh, in 1914 and 15, all the governments published very partial documentation to show that they were the good guys, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the British had cut the cable, uh, the telegram cable, telegraph cables from Germany to the rest of the world on the 3rd of August, 1914. So the Germans were never able to get their story out. And I think partly, literally, they communications, physical communications problems, and then the German mindset is kind of too honest maybe or too pedantic or whatever. And the British have always been much better salesmen and bullshitters, if you like, of ideas. So they, they won the war of opinion throughout the war and immediately after. But in the 1920s, you had not only German scholars, I mean, they had a vested interest, you know, people, not right, well, nationalists or whatever saying, we are not the guilty ones. Um, at all. We're not guilty at all. There's a case for that. And we are only partly guilty. And there's a strong case for that. I mean, I think that's indisputable. So let's just go with a weak case. All sides are a little bit guilty for World War One. And I think the German scholars of the 1920s made that very strong case, going through the actual published diplomatic uh, information, which is actually out there now, you can actually find all the old British papers on the internet. Mm. Um, It wasn't just the Germans, it was the uh French and the Americans so the uh, the Americans probably went further than the 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 British and um, the, the French or the Germans so that's got credibility the British never had that uh revisionist view so but but what come the 1930s before hitler rose to power and started to scare everybody i'd say like by 1933 or 34 the established view in america was that the british were the bad guys in world war 1 and of course and the Germans were practically innocent and it, and don't forget that in 1933, I mean, not only did America have a lot of German and Irish Americans who had their own gripes about the um, British, but, I mean, America was founded in opposition to, to America. So they were British in culture, Britain. but they were anti-British. America was founded so in opposition to the, Britain. You could call it the spirit of 1776, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why Charles mm-hmm. Lindbergh was so strong in the 1930s, because this America First movement, we're not going to let the British drag us into another war, you know? So, um, and, and Roosevelt ba- basically cheated Europe. I mean, you know, he, he he attacked Germany without it being noticed. So he provoked the Germans. Uh, he attacked well, about the
1: one Germans. year. That is very, very I mean, unknown. It, no. it was a, a war on the sea uh, was uh, waging right. for that time and already. Pearl, yeah. He knew about
2: Pearl Harbor. So he mm-hmm. thought we can get Germany in through the back door uh, by attack. by by Because Pearl Harbor, of course, the Roosevelt ordered all the big capital ships, into the ocean and so when the japanese attacked um they didn't attack the most the most powerful american fleet and the americans had read the intercepts i mean this has been known for decades um, in the um anyway um the, the 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 so what i did in my book was um, I read all these books. I mean, the Americans are incredibly helpful because they have credibility. And, I mean, the Germans would say, "Well, the Germans would say that," but the Americans convinced me. And then I've I've been digging in lots of sort of material. And and about ten years ago, uh, an Australian historian, uh, Christopher Clark, came out with a book called The Sleepwalkers. And I know it was very big in Germany. I think it was one of Angela Merkel's very favorite books. So that kind of paved the ground for what I was doing. Although he didn't go as far as I mean, I I. Walked in his footsteps. I followed some of his sources, original sources, and I went further than he did. Um, and um, I and he his book is kind of the definitive mainstream book on World War the origins of World War One. I. And I, he became professor yeah. at Cambridge at history in history on the basis of that. So I think he has to be a little bit careful because if he'd said everything, he wouldn't have got that job. I mean, he has to be playing nice with the British establishment. I mean, he probably knows. I haven't been, been into, maybe I can interview him. But he probably doesn't say everything he knows you know but anyway i think that the the, the what the british did from uh, 1895 onwards was this kind of single-minded demonization of the germans and turning them into something they were not you know i mean germany was germany's big crime was that it was an extremely successful rival that had unified it fought a few cabinet quick cabinet wars if a cabinet war is a kind of war political war that takes a few weeks to Unified Germany in 1870, and then they'd, they they they, ben, they industrialized late. So they and they they had a very very good education system, uh, whereas Britain was a fading country already by 1880. I mean they had a an elite that didn't know anything basically, that, that was kind of living off the, a rentier rentier class, and the British form of industrialization was not very cost effective. Hundred years later, because it was based on. I mean, I, I worked for an engineering magazine for a long while, so I wrote some articles about this. The Germans had proper engineering universities. They were professional and serious about their industrialization, whereas the British did everything in an amateurish way, you know, based on contacts and those kind of corrupt. Um, but what the British did have was charm and kind of soft, what you call soft power, which the Germans looked up to. So what you had was a relationship where the the British... The books have been published about what the British thought of the Germans from 1870 to 1914. In 1870, the British books about Germany was of this romantic country that po- produced royal family and poets, and the the Soviets, uh, Russian, the Germans are a bit sl- sleepy and stupid. By 1890, they were efficient bureaucrats. Everything was clean. They covered their rubbish bins. I mean, there's it, it sort of sounds like Sweden, and whether. Journalists. It's a very consensus-minded society, and everybody's boring. That's worst. But then, by 1900, the Germans were. They already talked about the jack boots and the jingling of spurs and the militarism and so on. <laughs> and um, that it's a kind of bloodline that's stuck to the German reputation ever since, you know. And I think there's some truth in it, but I think the British did everything they could to exacerbate that. And it, I it was, think, uh, if I may interrupt ideas you the idea spread all the colonies. But, yeah. but what they did was they. Uh, that that's the that's the media thing and they made a lot of people british people believe it but what they also did was the thing is in 1900 if I, tell me if i'm going too fast for you uh, they had the boer war which was when the the british empire it was like the iraq war the british were hated after it just as the Americans hated after Iraq. Oh, no, because very
1: good. Very important point also internationally and especially in Germany. It was it was uh, it was looked at is you know that uh, the Nazis made a propaganda film about that, ohm Krüger. Yeah. And that was successful because it was a, a, a topic, a topic in the in the German mind that the poor Boers as they were thought of were mishandled by the British, which were evil. The perfidious Albion, this is what the the story side right. that came up in Germany. Yeah.
2: And and the first use of the word concentration camp was in in uh, South Africa. You concentrated. Yeah. They couldn't defeat the Boers. Every every Boer knew how to handle a rifle. They, so they were romantic frontiersmen. Um, but they gathered all the men, women, and children into concentration camps and, and killed them and starved them. And it became a big scandal. Uh, does that break mean it's a break now?
1: Yeah, if we need to take yeah. a break, I just wanted to, yeah. one thing that I think is important. Germany was smaller than Great Britain, but its yeah. uh, economic power was on the rise. It's a little bit like yeah. China, USA today. But it's a, it's, it was it's you know, Germany like this drag. and, exactly. and, and, yeah, and uh, exactly. Britain like that. And with each year that passed, the situation would get worse for the British. So
2: exactly,
1: war, that is the thing. That's right. Let's talk about that afterwards. But I'd like yeah. to get into uh, today because yeah. I think there is a similarity. And I think exactly. we both think that. Um, So some advertisements and then we go there.
0: With his expert analysis and opinion. This is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea.
3: This is so obviously a PR driven false narrative psyop. It's hard to believe anyone could buy it, much less get excited by it. But I guess they're right, you can fool some of the people all of the time. I'm talking of course about the latest love of the decade, Taylor Tay Tay Swift, who is elevated to stardom by singing whiny songs about all her failed relationships. And Kansas City Chiefs tight end in Pfizer vaccine shill, Travis Kelsey. This isn't a romance. This is the Hollywood music industry and the NFL combining to push Joe Biden across the finish line next November. And along the way, Tay-Tay's gonna get the job done by pushing abortion. Her traditional audience was preteen girls, and she's trying to get that a little older demographic, the voting age demographic. Will it work? Time will tell. I just hope that people wake up before it's too late. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio.
2: The next time you think you can illegally handle your mobile phone while driving and get away with it, Think again. Phone detection cameras are in operation on New South Wales roads. Hello. So
0: if you're driving and illegally handle your mobile phone, you can stop it or cop it.
1: You're listening to Dirk Pullman on today's News Talk,
0: TNT Radio.
1: And my guest is the future TNT host Pelle Nerud, Um, and we were deep into World War One, and I wanted him to make the connection also to the current situation because I think we both think there's astonishing amount of similarities. Yeah, it's like history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, as Mark Twain once said. But you, you go ahead, Pelle, with your thought. Yeah? Well,
2: well, the thing is, uh, the Boer Bo- Bo- War. Um... Which uh, created some of the best Australian films ever made. There's one film called *Breaker Morant*. I think many, many, I think it's American uh, Australian Film Library. It's it's said to be the best Australian film ever. It's about a, a guy who dies a martyr's death. I think. Anyway, um, the Boer War had the effect of uniting France, Germany, and Russia against Britain, and there was the. The the Britain what the basic thing you, the, anything you need to know about the British worldview is that they are terrified of a continental alliance against them. The Americans mm. have inherited that fear. An, an alliance between Russia and Germany, or an alliance between France and Germany, or France Germany and Russia, and they will do everything to try and break that alliance because Russia has the land and the resources. And the labor power and germany has the know-how the intelligence the engineering skills and france has the whatever
1: <laughs> culture but i mean <laughs> what ha-
2: what happened in uh,
1: the, the the french brilliant engineering actually... too don't underestimate the french That's engineering true. okay yeah <laughs> so
2: the French, the french and actually um planned a war against britain to start in about 1901 because they'd just been humiliated in africa there's something called the Fashoda incident, and the, the British had basically won the war over Africa. They colonized most of it, and the French were licking their wounds, and they were very proud. So they tried to get the Germans and Russians to join them in a war against Britain. This was in 19, 1899. They failed to do that. Uh, there, were, there were plans for landing in Boulogne, right? and Not for no, leaving Boulogne and landing in Dover. and and But the, who who stopped it? Because the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, said no. Wilhelm was very, very pro-British, okay, because his his mother was English and he loved the British. The British didn't Emily love him.
1: <laughs> yeah. So
2: he he said that he became a butt of jokes. The Kaiser was like Putin. Every every British headline had the Kaiser does this, Kaiser does that. It was never Germany does this or Germany does that. It was personalizing the enemy and attributing to him attributes that he didn't possess. He was painted as the devil or something with a horn and a tails, but he was actually a pacifist you know the british fought several wars between 1890 and 1914 the kaiser didn't fight any wars you know um but they called him a militarist and 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 they used the fact that he uh liked uniforms and that the germans did march in a way to exaggerate german marshal but it was the british who were much more aggressive in in the years 1890 to 1914 in all their colonial wars the kaiser so the french were unable to unite behind um a German and, and Russian alliance. But what happened was that the British were aware of this, and they united with France. Just so the French, having failed to, to attack Britain, could have put on a false smile and became friends with the British in 1904. The Entente Cordiale, and the French were already allied with the Germans and uh, with the Russians. So what you had was the a British Franco-Russian alliance which the British then used to shape into an anti-German alliance because it, it was very beneficial for them to squeeze Germany using the French and the Russians as proxy forces Well, because they knew that if there was a war, they could blockade Germany and steal all of Germany's colonies and steal all of Germany's markets. The British didn't have an army. I mean, they had a small expeditionary force, but they had a big fleet. So if they could make... The French and the Russians fight their fight and dismember Germany. The British would take all the prizes. You know that was the plan. The other good thing was that if the French and the Russians were obsessed with Germany and the German threat, they wouldn't cause problems for Britain on the colonial frontier because the the they the British were always frightened that the Russians would go across Afghanistan and go into Pakistan and India and take yeah. India. That they were terrified that the French would do something in Africa. So if they kept all the opposition hostile to Germany in Europe, so they were like the chief cheerleaders for the anti-German coalition and the, and um the this um the, I mean, I don't know how much detail I should go into, but um for they what what they the um the The thing that immediately actuated the war, I think, um I mean, the French and the Russians were far from innocent. The French wanted to win back Alsace-Lorraine, and they were quite mm-hmm. martial in themselves. and the Russians uh, the Russian left or the Russian liberal class were very Francophile and they're very stupid, I think. I mean if France says it, they it was a good idea basically and and um what if we just fast forward to nineteen spring of nineteen fourteen, the British made an alliance, a naval alliance with Russia. Which, because uh, they'd always had worse relations with Russia than they had with France, and that kind of tied the knot. That tied tied the circle. And the Brit, the Germans saw this, and the Germans thought that their re- their relationships were getting better with the British because Bethmann Hollweg was the German Chancellor in 1909 to 1914. His only job, he, as he saw it, was to be friends with the British. The Germans have always wanted to be friends with the British. They don't understand that the British hate them and and fear them. You know. <laughs> and uh, you know the German elite spoke English, and they went riding foxes with hounds, and they imported British magazines, and and it's pathetic when the the Germans were closed out of the um, of the regatta in the Isle of Wight, um, we, uh, where King Edward uh, attended. The, the Germans set up a replica regatta in Kiel modeled, and they imported British sailors and British girls who could sit on the decks of the ships speaking in aristocratic English, you know. <laughs> and um, the, um, anyway, so the, um, the British uh, tied this knot. And the other thing is, uh, which has also been known for decades, is that, well, we know that the assassins in Sarajevo were backed by Serbian in military intelligence, a guy called Dimitrievich okay?
1: Mm. What is less
2: known, and it was the harder link to establish, is that the Russians sponsored the uh, Serbian intelligence. So there was a connection there. And the in July 1914, um, the Russians and the French moved into position at the same time as this assassination took place as a kind of triggering event. And there might even have been a French aspect because there were two assassination teams and not immediate one. Only one, I think, turned up. But, but there's a lot we don't know there. I think we'll probably never know it. But if you can pick up various material out of um, on, in written respectable sources, you know, books written in the 1960s, for instance, referring to books written in the 1920s, you can make the case that maybe the Russians, Russian intelligence was behind it. I mean, Okhana, the Russian intelligence service, had an office in Paris, for instance, and so it could have been that because the the French and the Russians wanted to de- destroy Germany, and they uh, they thought it was going to be a fast war as everyone
1: always does, you know. If and I the, may the Russians... interrupt you, Pelle, yeah. uh, we need to be careful. I want to get yeah. n- not stay in World okay. War One, but why okay. is it similar to today? We have only ten minutes left, so okay. Maybe so, we'll so, find
2: your way to that. well, the thing is, today is the what the, what the British managed to do was that they by by by. Using soft power to, to attract, that made the Russian elite hostile to the Germans. Basically, the Kaiser made his mistake by stopping an alliance with the Germans, which Bismarck had created in the eighteen seventies. Because he was too arrogant and young to know better, and because the alliance British, with the Russians, you mean? Yeah, yeah Bismarck created. Which, yeah, okay, it, exactly. And mm-hmm. you need peace between Russia and 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 Germany to have peace in Europe. He stopped. That, that was Bismarck's sentence. That was Bismarck's
1: main main uh, exactly. main perspective.
2: And he fired Bismarck because he wanted to get friendly with the British and Bismarck was much more skeptical about the British. Okay. So yeah. that broke the German Russian Alliance. And basically they were pushed into war against each other. And what we're seeing today is that the the similar situation is what you're facing when this bridge and road uh, thing, the, the, the Chinese and the Russians, thanks to Nord Stream and thanks to the uh, BRI project, were getting closer to the Germans. And they were sending cheap gas to the Germans and the German economy was doing well. And that was like a grand continental alliance against the maritime powers, Britain and America. And I don't, I have no idea if Boris Johnson or whatever, if they were conscious of these things when they weaponized Ukraine and weaponized Poland and weaponized Scandinavia as a barrier against a rapprochement between uh, Germany and, uh, and 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 Russia. But basically they've, They've severed that link between uh, Germany and Russia, and made it impossible for those countries to unite and for Europe to unite with or get closer to China. And the winners of this are, of course, mainly America, because Britain is part of the European continent. But I guess there are elements in Britain that that fear maybe that uh, a, a de-dollarization of the world economy could affect the city of London, for instance. I don't I don't know how the economics of that works. Um, but what they're doing is they—they they are. the British have the fortune of being at the other end of Europe from Russia. So just like they weaponized the French and the Russians to fight the Germans in 1914, and they were sitting at the back pumping out propaganda and doing all the soft power stuff, in the beginning, then they joined the war seriously in 1916. But for the first two years, they were doing that sort of stuff. Uh, Britain is now... Using its navy, maybe to do Nord Stream, uh, do other bad things, sending its special forces in, and and using the Ukrainians as their proxy fighters, basically. And I think what what I the biggest thing I fear is that there's going to be a new Franz Ferdinand event. That is, mm-hmm. some leading Russian official could be assassinated, maybe by a Ukrainian. I mean, they they do it; they're crazy, and mm-hmm. uh, that would spark World War Three. I mean, the Russians have been very controlled and very anti-escalatory, but the the thing is that that. To me, the goal of the Ukrainians has always been: they want to es- they want to goad the Russians into escalating the war at the point to which public opinion in the West will
1: think we've got to fight the Russians now because the Russians are so evil. It is their desperate last choice, and this is why it's so dangerous. Yeah, That's and right, uh, what we see right now: it, uh, the situation is heading fast towards uh, that Ukraine Ukraine is dumped by the West because it. Uh, we could see the scripts from the RAND Corporation, who first said uh, expanding and overexpanding Russia, and then uh, it's a cost-effect uh, disparity. It's not doing what it should be. In between, we had the uh, allegedly fake, but I think true RAND paper, which said uh, how to, uh, to diminish German influence in Europe and that is the Nord Stream thing that was proposed not the Nord Stream but proposing the cut of the uh, energy yeah. and also cutting France off from the uh, uranium in Northern Africa which strangely enough also happened yeah so it was yeah. like a, these are scripts um but then now it's getting to the point where um, there's more and more talk I know that you follow that as close as I do you can see the hands are shifting towards this will not work any longer. We have about maximum half a year or so to go before the West will uh, ask for peace negotiations. But then you have a completely destroyed Ukraine. You have 500,000 young a generation of young wom- uh, men missing. You have two million people that are abroad as refugees. You have a wrecked country. And then what is what is next there? So this is this going to be the Chile? Uh, of uh, the 21st century the americans had chile after pinochet and made it uh, a neoliberal uh a super experimental field the chicago boys were there as they were there when you were in russia they were trying to to and now it's the the fan mises and hayek people who uh, are trying to get a hold of uh, ukraine i even thought if the uh, uh, the the yeah, I didn't yeah. understand why they would work mm-hmm. with Nazis. But of course, right. if you think that you want a, a new playground, then to have the playground clean is a uh, is not the yeah. worst situation that you have. What is your take on what's going on now? There, we have about five more minutes. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, I don't know. I can't tell you closely about it. I mean, I, I read uh, Russian and Ukrainian events all the time and every day, but. I mean, I, what I heard is that, that BlackRock are uh, already buying up large tracts of agricultural land. And BlackRock, Ro- BlackRock yes. is one of the world's largest hedge funds or, or investors. And, and f- I can f- f- well f- believe f- that...
1: Fertile f- soil is a big thing in, uh, in, the, in the markets right now. It's also... That's right. The biggest landowner of all is uh, uh, Bill Gates. So you see yeah. what's going on there. Big money That's is going right. into agricultural fields. Yeah? Exactly. And
2: I think that... Um, you know a lot of building companies are looking for uh, possible opportunities and i don't know i mean maybe uh, mass migration of various groups favored groups that um, the oligarchs can control and shift around um because it's in europe and it's potentially close to european markets and it's um i th- and i think obviously the whole thing about the ukraine project was that um the, the Russians felt threatened because the West wanted to use Ukraine as a template. Let's say a country of 30 million, uh, which is totally under the West's thumb, will slice up Russia into five republics of that size and run it in a way that we're running Ukraine. And so sometimes, so somehow they want to make that attractive. And mm-hmm. and I, I think that also that this sort of cultural warfare against the Russian culture, I mean, you're using a Ukrainian culture... And you'll you'll big that up and you'll boost that. And of course, for the Russians, it's a kind of insult because they always saw the Ukrainians as the little brothers. And suddenly, they're talking big and oppressing the Russians because they say, "Well, we're Western, you're orcs, you're beasts." You're... They're Orientalizing the Russians in a way, uh, just like uh, uh, mm. Edward Said talked about the West doing to, to the Palestinians and the Arabs. And it's an incredibly provocative to the Russians to do that, you know, because they're a proud and big culture. And I think. um so this is that cultural aspect, um, and yeah, I, 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 yeah. I guess it could be a, a sort of um, neoliberal experiment, you know, low tax uh, that will kind of shake Europe into carrying out similar reforms if, if it's successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, if if, if uh, the Ukrainian, um, what what is I, your I take mean,
1: on the Ukrainian military situation? Do you do
2: you agree that this I think is it's terrible, coming to yeah. an end now? I, I do. Yeah, I think the Russians have done in three different armies and the Russian Ukrainian um TV channel one plus one actually revealed the true Ukrainian uh casualties 1.2 million and I guess that's I I, I think it's missing an action wow. and killed so that's actually okay. much higher than what even uh, McGregor talks about he talks about 500 000. and then they yeah. quickly took that down again um so and, and as we all know I mean the Western media always trumpet. Russian casualties with a massively exaggerated, I mean, the, mm. the media's owner, the BBC project, talks about, I don't know, fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 Russian dead maximum. So given the artillery attacks and the air superiority the Russians have, it's not surprising if Ukrainian deaths are you know much, much higher. So I yeah, think the war is bitterly over. We
1: hear is, what we hear is uh, that uh, British military intelligence gave you the following numbers. And they get it directly from Ukraine and uh, just uh, hand it through. And this is what we are fed as truth in Germany. So we're even in a more propaganda bad situation about news. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, uh, is there? What do you think? Is this uh, is this a screeching halt now because there's the Biden election, which will change things yeah, that I, can happen now?
2: Well, I'm. I'm. I'm I, I think the last latest news on the. Uh, russian uh, the, the congress congressional front is that i mean there's two minds about whether they'll pass it in the new year this uh, aid bill for the ukrainians but even if even if they do there's no guarantee the the goods won't be flowing in until june or something and i don't think i don't think it'll be solved before christmas now so it'd be at least 4 or 5 months before the ukrainians get their any equipment through and i don't think it's going to be much equipment and they're still stalling on the f16s so mm. Uh, there was an article in Built two weeks ago, was it, that they said that the Germans and and the Americans are secretly trying to starve the Ukrainians of equipment to bring them to this conclusion that they themselves have to make peace.
0: Oh my God, yeah,
2: I mean, uh, but we'll hope maybe Zaluzhny a... or something, uh, well, maybe maybe there'll be a coup in Kiev and Zelensky can enjoy his a beach holiday in Miami for
1: the rest of his this life this is what we read in one of the newspapers uh, we are out of time now Pelle it's a pity I would like to go on with that maybe another week um, and yeah. uh, thank you for being on my show you will have the chance to hear Pelle in a route from now on on TNTSO's goodbye thank you bye